0: Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who was also in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. As I often do, I'd like to open up with a question for you this morning. Um, Since you've become a believer in Jesus Christ, has your life gone the way that you imagined it would? Are you doing what you thought you would be doing? Are you where you thought you would be? And are you who you thought you would become? Isn't it true that in our Christian experience, whether in life, ministry, family, family, we find that God's ways are not our ways. Isn't that true? That he acts very differently from what maybe we perceive that he will do in our life. That, that his ways are not our ways. And I've grown to be thankful for that. Because I realize so often I either set the bar too high or I set the bar too low. I'm really bad. I, I, I have expectations that are unmet. And then sometimes I, I, I just let myself off the hook. Uh, I'm a walking contradiction, if you will. Left to myself. Um, But isn't it true, even if you are doing what you thought you would be doing, maybe God spoke to you early on and he gave you a vision, he gave you a word of what he called you to do. Isn't it often true that the way that he gets you there is not what you had planned? Sometimes, you know, again, he, he takes us through life in a manner that's just not what we had envisioned. But looking back now, looking at things hindsight 2020, I'm so thankful that the Lord does the things the way that he does. You know, there are things that I ask for uh, that so often, you know, I think, Lord, please give this to me. And if he gave it to me, I, I, I'm not ready for it. And I think it would, be, it would be wrong for him sometimes to give us blessings if we're not ready for those blessings. Because then when we lose the blessings, they become, in a sense, a, a curse. You, you can't keep it if you're not ready for it. So, the Lord has a plan in all of our lives. And I think we're going to see that this morning. Uh, even as we look at the disciples and John the Baptist. So, last time we were together, we were in the wilderness. And we witnessed the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus would refer to him as the greatest of prophets. He was the, the prophet who not only spoke of the coming Messiah, but he actually got to see him face to face. Right? The other Old Testament prophets, they spoke of him. Sometimes they didn't even fully understand what they were saying, though they knew there was one to come. Yet John actually baptized him. He saw him as the Spirit fell upon Jesus as a dove. And so John would prepare the way for Jesus Christ. He had a message of repentance He told people that the king was coming and therefore you need to repent. You need to change your way of thinking, change your mind regarding sin, but also regarding the one who is to come. His means was baptism. We saw that he baptized people who had repented. It was evidence of their repentance. And he would not baptize certain people who he knew were there for the wrong reasons. Remember, he gets into verbal conflict with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders of his day. And he called them the lovely brood of vipers. Uh, He had the mentality one of humility. And that really, really gripped my heart this past week. As I thought about who John was uh, and the fact that he was able to be humble uh, even with his calling. Even with who he was in the Lord. As a prophet, his duty was to point people to the coming one. And we see him do this. We see Jesus' baptism. And uh, ultimately, as Jesus enters into his baptism, we see that he is the one that John has been speaking about. He's the one who would come after uh, the forerunner. Uh, As Jesus is baptized, does he confess sin? No. Jesus had no sin to confess. So rather than go and confess sin, as all the other people did when they were baptized by John, we see the Father himself confessing the Son, This is my beloved son. We also saw it didn't stop there, did it? It didn't stop with Jesus' baptism. And and I'm, I'm very grateful for that because he could have just been baptized. The father could have revealed Jesus to everyone at that point and said, you know what? To the whole world, this is the son of God. Bow down and worship before him. And if Jesus would have just allowed his glory to be revealed at that given moment, every knee would have bowed, every tongue would have confessed. But here's the thing, we would be lost, wouldn't we? If he would have just stopped at his baptism. Rather, he enters baptism, but then we see immediately the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness where he would be tempted by the devil for 40 days. No doubt, uh, a picture of Israel being baptized through uh, the Red Sea and going into the wilderness for 40 years, and yet Israel's results were not so well. They, they ended up sinning. They ended up committing idol- idolatry and, and murmuring and complaining and going away from the Lord. Uh, and, and so Jesus is able to really perfect what we see in Israel. And so that brings us to chapter 1, verse 14 this morning. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, this is a sad fate that we see here before us this morning. We see here Jesus, after his temptation, we see John the Baptist being put into prison. And remember who John is. John's a prophet. And unfortunately, John has the fate of many prophets that have come before him. You know, if you study the Old Testament, it didn't go so well for the prophets, did it? We think, oh, that would have been amazing to be a prophet of God, to speak forth the word of God with power and conviction. And yet the prophets were, were so often rejected, neglected. And people wanted to hush the voice of God. And so the fact that John is in prison before us, this is a sad moment, really. In Israel's history, because another prophet is being silenced and squashed. And yet, we see clearly from the text in verse 14 that this is part of God's plan. You see, in order for Jesus to take center stage, John would have to take a back seat. And he even knew this because he said, speaking of Jesus, he said, He must increase. Oh, but I must decrease. See, isn't that the heart of everyone in ministry? Shouldn't that be our hearts this morning? That Jesus should increase and I should decrease. His name should be proclaimed. Remember how the scripture tells us, whatever you do in word and deed, what do we do? Do it all to the glory of God. In word or deed, whether you're eating or drinking, the basic things of life, whether it's a huge ministry where you're serving thousands or you're giving someone a glass of water, we do it in the name of Jesus. We want to point people to him because who here realizes ministry isn't about us? And I thank the Lord for that. If ministry was about you, then it would all ride on you and your perfection, really. It would all ride on you. And and that's a terrifying thought because I know me. And I realize if ministry was all about me, and you were just looking to me as the example, wow, that's a burden that I really can't carry, to be honest with you. Because I sin. I look in the mirror and I see a man who falls so short of the glory of God. God. It's freeing to realize that ministry is not about us. It it frees us to realize, you know what? This is Jesus' church. This is the church that he shed his blood for. This is the church that he's gone to build. And we just, we get to become part of his ministry. We get to serve along with him. And so remember that ministry is not your own. It's his. And when I say ministry, I just want to be real quick to make sure that we understand what I'm speaking of. Ministry just means service. Right? Don't don't make this something like, oh, an ordained, you know, minister. No, you're a minister. You've heard us say this all the time. Rob used to say this all the time. What's the purpose of a pastor? We see in Ephesians, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so, when I say ministry, it just means service. It could be a formal ministry. It could be an informal ministry. Don't feel like it has to have a name attached to it. But the Lord calls each of us to a ministry, yet... It's not ours, it's not for us, and it's not about us, because it's for him and it's about him. And therefore, he chooses how and when to use us. If, if I'm being honest with you, if it was about me, the Lord would put me on the shelf. And if it was about Luke and how good of a Christian he is, I would have been on the shelf a long time ago. And I'm so thankful, again, it's about him, it's about his name. John understood he must decrease so that Jesus would increase. However, once he's in jail, you'll see in another gospel account, he starts to wonder, is this the way that it's supposed to be? Because Jesus isn't acting the way that he thought he would act. Things weren't going the way that he imagined they would. And we find out in serving others that ministry is not what we thought it would be. Isn't it true that when you serve others, the glamour quickly fades? You know, I think we all have this idea of serving the Lord. And when I use that terminology, either ministry or serving the Lord, usually there's something that comes into our minds, especially as a new believer. And rightfully so. You know, when you think of the church and ministry, isn't it true? I mean, the first place we should look is the book of Acts. We, we build kind of the way that we have structure our church after that book. And so you can read the book of Acts and you can see where, oh, people were of one accord. One mind, one heart. This is amazing, right? And then you get plugged into a church and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> what, what's this? There's, there, there, there's my idea of what it should be. And it is true. Isn't that what we should be? I mean, that's the ideal. That's what God wants to do as us as a, as a group and individually. But so often our ideas and the reality of ministry are two different places, We see that though not just in ministry, I think we also see that in the home. You know, maybe before you had children, you were picturing what it would be like to be a parent. And you were thinking about how you were going to raise your kids. Oh, I'm going to raise my children in the admonition of the Lord. They're going to walk with Jesus every single day of their life. They're going to be the most godly kids in Cumberland or in the United States, you know. They're going to know so much about Jesus. And then you have the children and you're like, who are these kids, Right. What happened? And it's not because of the kids. We were all that way. They're kids. Or your husband. Ladies, you were getting married and you thought, you know what? I found my Prince Charming. And he is going to be the rabbi on Main Street. He is going to wash me in that word every single day. And I am just going to blossom underneath his love and his care. And maybe that's true, Lord willing. Or your wife. Guys, when you found that special someone... And you're reading through Proverbs 31 and you're like, oh, this is her right here. This is her. This is going to be, in fact, she's going to be greater than Proverbs 31 woman. Solomon's going to have to write a new proverb for her because she's so great. Or community, You're, you're called to serve those in your community. And you've been equipped with the gospel and you're like, wow, this is the greatest news. And it is the greatest news. And you think just because you love the gospel, every person who you encounter with is going to love it just the same as you. And so you go to work and you're ready to set the world on fire for Jesus. You're ready to see people just fall down and worship God and say, truly God is among you. And so you start sharing the gospel with people in, in your job and you realize they don't want to hear it. And so again, there's this vision that we have of ministry And then there is reality. Many times our vision, I think, is pure in the sense that it's what we know things should be. But the problem is we live in a broken world. And things are not because of sin as they should be. And we're dealing with sinful people who say sinful things. Now, after John is put in prison, we'll see Jesus leaves Judea and heads north to Galilee. And this is sort of odd to me. Because when I think of Judaism and I think of Israel... There is one place that comes to my heart and my mind typically, and that is Jerusalem. This is the city of God. This is where the temple of God is, where people flock to for different seasons of the year to experience the very presence of God. This is where the rabbis and the, and the scholars are situated, where they can expound on the scriptures. And I think in my mind, isn't this where Jesus should, should set up shop? I mean, this is it. This is the, 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 the Mecca of religion. And yet we see Jesus doesn't stay down south. Rather, he goes up north. He goes away from the wilderness into a place where there are masses of people. See, as John was baptizing in the Jordan River in the wilderness, the people had to go to him. And the people left Judea. They left Jerusalem. Jesus came from up north to be baptized by John. But re- recall, the people had to go to John. He wasn't there on the street corner preaching, was he? But Jesus, rather than have the people come to him, he goes to the people. I like that. That's ministry. So often I find churches, they wait for people to come to them. But that's not what God entrusted us with when he gave us the gospel. What did he say? He said, go, therefore, as you're going, disciple. And so Jesus himself, he went to The people, in fact, Josephus, who was a uh, Jewish historian, he he estimated that in the time of Jesus, there were three million people living in Galilee. That's a lot of people. And so he's leaving the wilderness. He's going to where the people are. And when you look at Galilee, you see there's sort of different sections of Galilee. Galilee. There was the north or the up upward section, which was very rugged. There was the the south, which was very hilly. But then there's the central or the east part of Galilee. And that's where the Sea of Galilee is situated. Uh, And around that sea, there was a large population that had uh, developed in different cities. It was a very fertile area. And so you had a lot of agriculture, a lot of growing taking place. And it was also the perfect place for fishing, as we'll see. And fish was a great product for Israel of this day. There was the fresh fish, of course, that you would purchase, but there was also, they would actually salt the fish and send it out. There was, you know, they didn't have the refrigeration that we do today. Uh, and so the Sea of Galilee was a happening place. Uh, roughly, if you were to look at the sea in, one of, in your Bibles and the map, you'll see that, you know, it's, it's not the biggest place on earth. It was about 12 or 13 miles by 7 miles. And you'll also notice that it's shaped as a harp. In fact, if you were to fly over this uh, sea, a lot of people would refer to it as a lake more than a sea. Uh, But if you were to fly over it, you would see the northwest corner as actually a deep blue because of its depth, which is where Capernaum is located. Um, And and it really does not have a significant place in the Old Testament. You will not see the Sea of Galilee prominent in, in the Old Testament scriptures. And yet, the ancient rabbis said this of the sea. They said, Jehovah has created seven seas But the Sea of Galilee is his delight. And I wonder, how did they come to that conclusion? I don't think they understood that the Messiah would walk the shores of that sea. And yet they they understood there was something significant about this sea. And it was also a major trade area. In the northwest corner, you had actually a a highway that went through that connected Egypt to Damascus and Mesopotamia. And so you had people from all over traveling through this region, which would have meant meant different dialects, different uh, forms of speech. Uh, Business would be going on. And so again, this is all part of God's plan. John is arrested. He's put into prison. And Jesus goes north to Galilee. But he doesn't just go there to, to sit. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what is his content? What, is, what was Jesus preaching? Because Mark, as we go through Mark, he's not so much concerned about a lot of the content of, of Jesus preaching. Like if you go to Matthew, you will see a lot of parables. You will see Jesus' uh, speech a lot. But in Mark, we see more of what Jesus did than what he said and so he, John, Mark is going to give us, though, a glimpse of what Jesus' message was as he went around Galilee preaching. It says, The time, verse 15, and, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you see a similarity between what Jesus is preaching and what John had already preached? Do you see the similarity there? It's very similar. He's using similar language. They're both preaching repentance, aren't they? And when I think of Jesus and him preaching, that's not usually the first thing that comes to my mind. I think of the parables. I think of the Sermon on the Mount. I think of him predicting his imminent death and resurrection and and speaking to the disciples. But here at the beginning of the gospel that Mark is laying out for us, we see him preaching repentance. Change your mind. Turn from sin and turn to the Lord." Now, there is one major difference, though, between John's message and Jesus' message. John preached one who would come after him. But Jesus is preaching the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand. John's saying, "He's coming after me." Jesus is saying, "Who? I'm here. I've arrived." The one that you're looking for is standing right in front of you, proclaiming a message from God above. The time is fulfilled. And when he says the time is fulfilled, it's not talking about chronological time. Rather, it's speaking of a distinctive time in world history that has come upon you. God has intervened into time and space to bring a message of good news that centers on the Son of God. The promises of the Old Testament will find their fulfillment in his person and in his message. The confident expectations of Old Testament believers is about to be realized. God has entered into his creation to redeem man from sin. And what an amazing time to be alive. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to be on the shores of Galilee and hear the Savior of the world preaching, proclaiming. Now, we'll see him next week teaching also. Well, it wasn't just that he came proclaiming and preaching. Jesus, we know, also taught. But here he's proclaiming, he's heralding, he's preaching the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's role and his kingship are present. And therefore, echoing John, what does he say? Repent and believe the gospel. See, if you do not repent, if you you choose to remain in your sin, then what he's getting at here is you will set yourself up in direct opposition to the kingship of Jesus there's always a choice. Jesus' word is like a sword, isn't it? The word of God is a sword. It's it's living. It's active. It divides. We know it divides the innermost parts of us, soul, spirit, joint, and marrow. But you realize the word of God also divides between the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust, those who receive the gospel message and those who reject it. His word is like a sword, and you can't You can't walk in the middle on it, right? It either has you fall on one end or the other. You're either hot or you're cold, but you can't be lukewarm when it comes to Jesus. And so when you are faced with Jesus' proclamation, you are responsible to make a decision to accept his invitation and therefore commit to him or to reject his message which means you reject him. Now, verse 16, we're going to see, Mark's going to give us a couple examples of Jesus giving an invitation and seeing what people's response to that invitation is. Verse 16, And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And so it pictures Jesus now walking along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, A place where much of his earthly ministry will take place. And he comes upon these two brothers, Simon, who later will be called Peter, and uh, Andrew, who we actually know was a disciple of John the Baptist beforehand. So as you see Jesus walking on the sea, and he tells these men to come and follow him, we'll see in verse 17. Please understand this is not the first time these two have encountered Jesus. It's not like here's some stranger walking along the ocean, they're in their boat. And he comes up to them and says, hey guys, come and follow me, you know, with them having no clue of who he is. Now, these gentlemen know exactly who Jesus is by this point. They probably heard him teach, maybe even down in Judea. Perhaps they've seen John the Baptist point to him as the Lamb of God, right? Remember, John pointed to Jesus. He was trying to get people to follow after Jesus because Jesus was the one. John wasn't even worthy to be a the work of a slave when it came to Jesus, right? He wasn't worthy to do that. And so these two men are doing what fishermen do they're casting a net. Now, if you're like me, I like to look into all the little neat things of Scripture. And by and large, there's actually different words that could have been used for that word net. And there are scholars who just devote all their time looking into every single word of this Bible because we know every word is flawless, every word is priceless, there's a, something behind every corner. And that word net, it's a specific net that they were using. It was a circular net that was about 10 or 15 feet in diameter. And around that net there were weights all around it. At the center of it you had a, a, a rope that was attached to it. So what they would do is they would, they would take the net and they would drop it into the sea And because of the weights, it would just go straight down to the bottom. And as it goes down to the bottom, it would catch fish in it. Then as it went down to the bottom, they'd get the rope that was attached to the center, and they would pull it up. And as they're pulling it up, you can just picture it circular. As they're pulling it up from the center, the weights would actually converge at the bottom, trapping the fish. Really neat. I don't know. I just like that kind of stuff. and so they drop the net to f- catch the fish this is what they were doing because this is what fishermen do and i do want to make a note here we understand these guys are fishermen they're laborers they're blue collar guys but as any of you who've had a trade and owned a business how many of you realize that a business is much more than just physical labor if it's going to succeed because when it comes to business there's isn't there the financial part of it there's the books which if you're like me, I don't really enjoy that part of it. Some of you are really good at that stuff. But there's not just the books. Here's what really gets some people. There's the communication, right? See, you can be a really skilled laborer. You might even be good with math in the books. But if you can't communicate with people, it's going to really hurt your business. You ever have someone that was so skilled, but they couldn't, converse with you, <laughs> to save a dime. And if you, if you have a skill and you can't converse, you're not going to obviously make profit, most likely. Why do I say all that? Well, here's something that you may hear from time to time of skeptics. People will read, say, First or Second Peter. And they will say, you know what? This, the Greek of First and Second Peter is so complex. There's no way that a fisherman could have written this. Now, there's two levels to that. Number one, we know that the Spirit of God inspired Peter. So the Spirit of God alone could cause Peter to become elegant and everything else. But Peter was a fisherman who would have had to have been able to converse with the people who he was doing business with. So he probably he would have spoken Greek. And therefore, it wasn't like he was some illiterate fisherman. Please understand, sometimes we look at these guys as if they just, you know, they're nobodies who were just fishing in the middle of a sea. No, he was probably educated so that he could handle business as well. So this is a little snippet. If you ever hear people trying to discredit the word of God, many times they'll hit at different things. This is sort of a a new century thing in the last hundred years or so that's come about in, in, in the study of the scriptures. And so verse 17, Jesus sees these guys casting a net. And then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. As he calls to them to follow him, he's offering them to become his disciples. Go after me as a disciple. And this is unique in his day and age because, in a sense, it was usually the disciples who went and sought after rabbis. And it was a long process to to find someone to become your rabbi. And the rabbi could reject you if they felt that you weren't up to the standards that they were looking for. But it was the disciples who usually looked for the rabbi. And yet, here we have Jesus calling the disciples. So he's flipping the script. We understand also that he's, of course, greater than any rabbi. And he's greater than a prophet. But he calls them to follow him. And he says here, I will make you become fishers of men. And I like this in the Greek because in the Greek it's very clear that when he says, I will make you become fishers of men, he's speaking of a process that he's going to put these men through. In other words, he's not saying, guys, come follow me today and tomorrow you guys are going to be fishers of men. I got seven easy steps for you guys. Right now, if you just follow me, give me five ninety-five; it's yours. Right? No, this is a process. You will become fishers of men. It speaks of an ongoing, continuous relationship with Jesus. And we're going to behold in this gospel nearly three years. These men will slowly become fishers of men. In fact, even at his death on the cross, they really don't get it. They really haven't become. We won't see them fully become until Pentecost. When the Spirit of God is poured out. And then Peter will preach boldly in the name of Jesus. But I will make you become. Now, as he uses the word fishers of men, when we read this Just for face value, it's very clear that he's obviously meeting them on common ground. These guys are fishermen, and so they've been casting their net. They're trying to catch fish. This is what they do for a living. This is who they are. And it's clear that he's taking them from where they are, and he's going to bring them to a place where he wants them to be. But it does go deeper than that because there was an idea of fisher of men. It was a common term that was understood to refer to the Lord in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 16, 16, he says, I will send you for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. But here's the catch, both in Jeremiah and in the verses I'm going to quote to you. In the Old Testament, when it referred to God as a fisher of men, it wasn't speaking of good news, it was speaking of judgment. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 19, 4 says, I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers. Also the prophet Amos would say, Behold, the day shall come upon you when he will take you away with fishhooks and your prosperity with fishhooks. And so Jesus, as he's saying, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. He's using a pun on words. There's the surface level, which is taking fishermen and making them become fishers of men. But he's going deeper than that. He's giving them the message of the kingdom of God. And those who receive their message, the good news, oh, they're going to they're escape the coming judgment of God, aren't they? And he will bring salvation and healing to the people who flee his judgment, embracing the gospel of Christ. But those who reject their message will ultimately bring judgment upon themselves. And again, this is that fine line of the word of God. You can't be on, you can't be on both sides. So the gospel, as the gospel goes forth, it does a couple things. Number one, we know it saves. Amen? The gospel saves. It's good news. In fact, as he sends them out as as fishers of men, he's telling them to proclaim good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king has arrived. He's come to save us from our sin. This is good news. But with the good news, the rejection of good news then becomes bad news. Because after you've heard the gospel, isn't it true that you're now responsible for what you've heard? And as you hear the gospel, which is a sweet fragrance to those who receive it, it's stench to those who reject it. And so these men will become fishers of men, and we see their response. They immediately left their nets and followed him, right? I like that they didn't wait and, you know, oh, let me go talk to so-and-so, let me think about it, right? Right? I got more important things to do. The playoffs are on today, right? So maybe it can wait till next week, Jesus? No, we see them immediately. They weighed their options, and his calling was much greater than what they had previously known. They take decisive action and make a one time decision to abandon all for the sake of following Jesus, of walking the same road as he would walk, as they would say. And so, verse 19. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately, again, that word immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. And so we see a second group of brothers who Jesus goes and he calls. Now, I want to note that they leave their father and the servants. In other words, these were men of wealth. When it uses the term that they were, they were in the boat here, there were a couple different boats that could have been described. There was the little rowboat that was usually on the side of the big boat. That wasn't what they were in. No, they had the luxury cruiser here, so to speak. These guys were wealthy. They had servants. This was a family business, Zebedee being the father. And so as Jesus called them to follow him, again, there's two sides to his call As they follow him, that means they have to leave behind something else. And in leaving behind, they would be called to leave behind the family business of familial expectations. Those who have a family business, isn't it usually implied that the sons will carry over or the daughters will carry over that business, take it on from mom and dad? And this becomes ingrained in the culture of a family many times. This is the expectation of dad. And here they are, they're, in following Jesus, they have to leave behind Zebedee in the boat with the servants. We sometimes have to choose between following what our family wants for us and what Jesus wants for us. That comes with the gospel. For many people, when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they understand, if I follow Jesus, my family's going to disown me. People in Muslim countries... Jewish families, atheist families, or other religions, or no religion at all. Many people realize that by following Jesus, I am making a turn in my life, which means I will be walking away from those who I love. And, and please understand, this text is so brief. It just gives you a quick summary of what happened. But for anyone who's ever had to leave father, mother, other people for the sake of the gospel. Yes, you're excited about following Jesus. But you still love these people. They're your relationships. These are your people that you've spent your whole life around. And so it's not that it's some easy like, oh yeah, I'm just going to follow Jesus and everything so lovely. They don't know how Zebedee going to respond based on our text from what we see. Now we do know that their mother is a believer because she tries to get them to have the right hand and the left hand at Jesus' kingdom, right? The greatest seats in the house, they're perhaps even related to Jesus, we don't know. But by and large, this is a difficult decision to make. There's also the financial security of it. Because this call caused them to leave behind a family business that was secure. There's financial security. Who doesn't like that? And so by following Jesus, they're leaving behind their lives. Now, it's not that they don't love their families. It's not that they're just saying, you know, take this job, Dad, you can have it. But it's their allegiance that's changed. We'll see them actually get back into the boat later. But their allegiance is now totally committed to Christ. And it can be painful. And there is a cost to count. And as Peter Before I even go there, um, it's not always just the gospel. In other words, it's not just because you believe in Jesus that, you know, you might have to leave behind family. I've found it true also, even if your family are believers, there's going to come a point in your life where what they want for you and what your family wants are two different things. And this is just your everyday walk with the Lord. And you have to make a decision at times. Am I going to follow after Jesus or am I going to go with what my family wants me to do? what is socially correct, what is expected of me. And that's a pressure. And those are difficult decisions and situations. Now, if you recall, most people believe that Peter actually fed John Mark a lot of the information in this gospel account. And so, whether Peter was alive or not when Mark wrote this, we really don't know. But here's the thing. Peter, no doubt, gave him this information. He was there. Simon, in our text. It's about 30 years since these events took place. And I imagine Peter looking back over his life as a follower of Jesus. And I really, really doubt that he regretted following him. I really doubt that he is sad that he gave up the fishing business to follow Jesus. I don't think so, because I can only imagine putting myself in Peter's shoes as as he's relaying this information to John Mark, thinking back to how Jesus would make him become a fisher of man. How Jesus, after Peter denied him, right, three times, what would Jesus do? He would restore him. He would pour out his spirit upon him. He would use him at Pentecost to proclaim the gospel with boldness and power, seeing thousands come to faith in Christ. He would use him to lead Cornelius and his family, the first Gentile converts, to the faith in the gospel. He would see the birth of the church and Jesus Christ using people to build up the body. He would witness all of this just because he chose to leave his net and follow Jesus. I don't think he regretted that for a minute. And if he would have held on to that fishing business, you know what? He could have kept it. But I guarantee you, 2,000 years later, we wouldn't be talking about some fishing business of Zebedee. And yet we have the fruit of a man who followed after the Lord, of men who followed after the Lord, later on of women who followed after the Lord. And I promise you, whatever God has called you to do, follow him and you will never, ever regret it. It will be difficult. There will be people who come against it, even people who you love. In fact, even other other Christians won't understand it at times. But whatever he calls you to do, follow him. He will be faithful to do what he promises to do in our life. And I promise you will never, ever, ever regret following Jesus. And any sacrifice that you make, you will be repaid so much more than any sacrifice, both in this life and in the life to come. And so what is Jesus calling you to do? What is the ministry that he's laid before you? Are you following him? Are you making excuses why you can't? Well, you know what? What he called these men to do, they were incapable of themselves. They were not fishers of men, but he made them become it. And that's what he wants to do in our life. And it's a process. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. For what you're doing in our lives. We thank you that you call us. You call us out of the world to not just be alone, but to serve, Lord. To be a minister, a servant, to follow you, Lord, wherever you lead us. And I pray that you give us grace to trust you. Lord, as these men left everything behind, maybe you don't call us to do that this morning. Maybe you just call us to leave behind our pride, our own agenda to leave behind our vision of what we think ministry should look like. Lord, you you call us to follow you. And we realize that you will make us become what you call us to do, Lord. Thank you for that, that you don't leave us to ourselves to try to eke this thing out. And Lord, I realize when we look back on our lives, we will never regret what we've done for you. May we do everything unto your name, unto, unto your glory. May you receive every ounce of glory through this church, through the members. And may we proclaim the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, to any and all who will hear. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.